I was sitting there during communion. I was thinking back, it was over 15 years. Am I on? Got it. Sitting down at communion, thinking back, it was over 15 years. I was there at down at Church of the McKing, uh, Church of the King in uh, Corpus Christi, and saw a little older feisty guy come up with a group of men and say, "We're from the Rio Grande Valley, and we believe God's called us to start a church." And he gave us the background and so on. And he says, we believe in accountability. Because we've been in a situation where there hasn't been accountability, so we want to have that. I remember back to that time, and then I came here during communion, and saw all of these people in this beautiful building, and the gymnasium, and the sign, and all of the books, and all of the growth. And as Linda said earlier, I thought, God is a good God. Just from a few men and a vision to stand on the authority of the Word of God. Look what God has done. Look what He's doing. I thank the Lord for this church. I thank the Lord for your pastor and you other elders who lead the church and you deacons. I thank the Lord for you musicians. Dave, that was just Wonderful musicians, thank you so much for that enthusiastic, victorious music. Occasionally I'm in churches that sing this sort of whiny, morose, music. I don't often go back to those churches. If we serve the risen, victorious Lord, why don't we sing in a victorious, risen way? We're God's victory people. Let's sing and act like that. Let's open our Bibles today in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. And preach a specifically, historically relevant message. But first I want to read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Isaiah is speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declaring the truth to Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, during a time of apostasy before they are carried away into captivity by Babylon because of their reprehensible idolatries and he says this verses 16 through 20 Isaiah 1 wash you make you clean put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil learn to do well seek judgment relieve the oppressed judge the fatherless plead for the widow come now and let us reason together saith the Lord though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. 
Can we say amen to the word of God? Amen. I was thinking as I was driving around the country this past week or two about this sermon, that it would be on Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday, Reformation Day being on Tuesday. And I thought, Lord, what should I speak on? And I said, uh, I think he gave me the message, which I'm going to deliver to you. You know, there are various strands of the Reformation. All of the Reformation churches believe the same basic thing, sola scriptura, sola fide, fide, faith, fide, faith alone. But there are different distinctives and different emphases. There was the Lutheran Reformation. There was the Swiss Reformation with Calvin and Zwingli. There is the Reformation in uh, England, the Anglican Reformation. But this church has been heavily influenced by another wing of the Reformation, though those are in no way uh, specifically wrong, certainly not in any of the main things. But this church has been, uh, has been influenced by the Scottish Reformation and Puritanism. And the Scots were these, as Ron just said. And the Scottish Covenanters by the Puritans. So I thought today I would speak on a Puritan Reformation today. A Puritan Reformation today. And if I gave it a subtitle, which is a little juicier, it's this. We could use, we could use a little Puritanism about now. We could use some Puritanism about now. And that's what I've decided to emphasize today. The Puritans started in England, and of course there were American Puritans. They believed that the English church had to be purified of the residue of the errors of Roman Catholicism. Their view is we cannot compromise with error. We cannot just let it sort of float along and coexist. We have to purify the church and purify the culture. And that's why they were called Puritans. They weren't perfect. Many of the Puritans believed, for example, that you couldn't, shouldn't celebrate Christmas and other holidays. I think they were mistaken about that. But on the whole, on the whole, they were correct. We can learn from the Puritans. And I think the Church of Jesus Christ today could learn from the Puritans. And I believe that the very evils, the very evils, the main corruptness of our culture and church today would be specifically corrected, specifically by going back to what the Puritans said on the Puritan distinctives. Look there in Isaiah 1, I was thinking, what text in the Bible would be most relevant to this message or describe what the Puritans were after? And essentially, I believe, it's in the last part of verse 16 and the verse, first part of verse 17. It's very simple. It says, cease to do evil, learn to do well. That, in some reform, is what the Puritans believe. You know, it's amazing how we can overcomplicate Christianity. People get hyper-pious sometimes and say, it is the Spirit working in my fingers. 
It is not me, O Lord, it is not me, but not Jesus' hands, not my hands. Not my feet, but Jesus' feet. And it sounds so pious, and they mean well, and so on. But I, I like the directness of the Word of God. When Isaiah says to a sinful people, Would you like to know what you need to do? Cease doing evil, and do what is right. It's very simple, it's very direct, it's very powerful, and that is the heart of the Puritan message. Repent and obey. So I'd like to mention several areas today as we think of some of the great Puritans. Oh, how many there were. In some ways, Knox in Scotland, and and John Owen, and Thomas Boston, and Jonathan Edwards, and Oh, Oliver Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, what a great and mighty man of God. And the Covenanters and others. But I'll mention some of these and expound some important truths today, and I hope it'll be helpful. I'd like to assert first, if you're taking notes, we could sure use some Puritanism in our individual lives. About now, in our individual lives. The Puritans were known for being doctors of the soul. Doctors of the heart. And just as we have medical doctors that examine us to see what is the problem. And they give a diagnosis and a prognosis. And they tell us, here's what you need to do to get well. So the Puritans would look at the word of God. They would examine what it tells about the human heart and why people sin. And how people can get right with God. They believed in self-examination. They believed that truth starts on the inside. Now, by the way, the outside is important, true, also. But truth begins on the inside. And the Puritans knew that. We begin with a heart right with God, a regenerate heart. And they believe in examining the human heart. Jonathan Edwards would speak, and here's a term that I love of his, religious affections. Religious affections. He knew where your affections are, there you will go. Not just your outward conformity, but as A.W. Tozer said, we are becoming what we love. If you have a heart for God, if I have a heart for God, if we have a heart for the Word of God, if we have a heart for the Church of God, if we have a heart for hymns and songs, that's where we'll be. If we have a heart for the world, we have a heart for twisted sexuality, we have a heart only for money, We have a heart only for sort of external things rather than for God. We will gravitate to that. We are led by our affections. And that's why the Puritans would often preach right to the heart. They thought that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had wrongly stressed external rites and ceremonies. There is an external dimension to the faith, no doubt about it. But we always begin with the heart. The scripture says, out of the heart come the great issues of life. Jesus himself said that, didn't he? Where do sins come? It's not that which is outside, comes from outside which defiles a man, but that which begins where? In the heart that defiles a man. Oh, the Puritans then were mighty, mighty men and women of prayer. Believe that you should be on your face before God, giving yourself to God in prayer. They believed in confession of sin. The Puritans took sin seriously. How casual we are about sin today. Well, yeah, I lusted and yeah, I'm kind of like that. Yeah, I said something 
I know, probably was something I shouldn't have said to that person, but, you know, they probably deserved it. Yeah, I don't really care much about the church. I'll go over a few weeks, but it's no big deal. I wanted to watch football. The Puritans would have said to you and me, do you not understand how serious sin is? It's an offense to God. And it must be confessed. If it is confessed and put away, it'll be forgiven and washed away. But if we cherish our sin, if we hold it deep in our heart and say, this is my sin and I will have it, then we'll stand under God's judgment. The Puritans knew that. The Puritans knew that we must live and read the Word of God. Oh, my friends, read the Word of God. How they understood that. How they understood the importance of living every part of our lives to the glory of God. Every part of our lives. We need Puritanism because our own time is given to a sort of casual Christianity. Casual Christianity. Yeah, just sort of come to church on Sunday and, yeah, I'm like a Christian on Sunday and I'm not so much a Christian Monday through Saturday, but I'll tell you, on Sunday I put on my Christian hat. When I go home I take my Christian hat off and Throughout the rest of the week, I kind of act mostly like the world does. But, my friends, that's not being a Christian. (laughs) We're called to follow Jesus Christ in every single aspect of our lives with a great passion at all times. And if we sin, and we will sin, we confess our sin to God, get up, and start again fighting the battle. And living life to the glory of God. The Puritans knew we're called to full surrender. A zeal for God in every aspect of our lives. In our will, our will belongs to God, and our children belong to God, and our money belongs to God, and our intellect belongs to God, and our time belongs to God, and our sexuality belongs to God, and our job belongs to God. Every aspect of our being belongs to God. The Puritans understood this. Therefore, there's no room in Puritanism and a biblical faith for half-hearted Christianity. There's no room for saying, I want to serve Jesus, but I just want to serve Jesus a little bit. There's no serving Jesus a little bit. You either serve him fully or you do not serve him. Amen, Reverend Sandlin, that's good preaching. Second, We could use some Puritanism in our evangelism. In our evangelism. How defective is our evangelism today, even in conservative circles? Reminded of the language that R.J. Rastuni used to use. He spoke of those who believe in fire insurance evangelism. I don't want to go to hell. Sure. I'll trust the gospel. I'll get some fire insurance. How cheap is it? Can I get it for $9.99 a month? I don't want to give my life to this thing. But sure, if Jesus will keep me out of hell, I'll, I'll sign on the dotted line for Jesus. Come to Jesus. He makes no demands. My friends, the Puritans understood differently. They understood something that has been nearly lost, and it's so tragic, nearly lost today. Understand a truth that all of the Puritans understood, that this church understands, but so many do not, and it's why this church is unique. 
The preaching of the law precedes the preaching of the gospel. It's amazing how many people don't understand that. It's remarkable. Understand that to the unconverted, the law indicts. Now, to those who are converted, it's a delight to us. It's a delight to us. But to the unconverted, the law, which is a description of God's holy character, it indicts. The Bible teaches that plainly. I won't take time today to show you that. But the law indicts. It's a writ of indictment. It's a covenant lawsuit. The law is good and holy and righteous, the Bible says. And when you preach the law of God, the Spirit convicts hearts. Now, would you like to know why, humanly speaking, there are so few deep conversions today? From our standpoint, we're not talking about God's elective purposes, but from our standpoint, would you like to know why? I know at least one reason why. Because people don't come under the deep conviction of sin. And they don't come under the deep conviction of sin because no one preaches to them the law. Because people are afraid to say, you're a sinner. You have broken God's law. You understand, though, people won't be drawn to Jesus Christ if they don't understand that they stand under God's judgment. Jesus isn't down here sort of inviting people to get on a train to go to heaven. Oh, isn't it fun? Just jump on the train. He's saying, you're on the train to hell. And unless you repent of your sins, that's where you're going to end up. Somebody says, well, Andrew, that problem is that in a multicultural age, in a relativistic age, that's just offensive. Yeah, it is. I saw a year, years ago a YouTube clip of preacher up in Houston, Joel Olstein. You know Joel Olstein. He was interviewed by Larry King, the great softball interviewer, you know, Larry King. And he says to Joel Osteen, you know, you've been criticized, I understand. You're so successful. You've been criticized by, from people, by some people. Larry's not a Christian, of course, Jew. He says, but you've been criticized. You know, the Bible does talk about sin. And he says, I've noticed that you don't really preach against sin. He says, well, I'll tell you, Larry. I found that when I preach against sin, it disturbs people. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good thing. People need to be disturbed enough to get convicted over their sin. And then how wonderful the gospel sounds. How wonderful and sweet the gospel is to those whose hearts have been convicted. Say, oh, I stand under God's judgment. I'm headed for hell. There is no hope. And somebody says, yes, but there is hope. In Jesus Christ, if you cast yourself on him. And the Puritans knew the heart of the great salvation doctrine of the Bible. There are many things I could say, but at the heart of it is what I'd like to call, others have called the great substitution. It is this. God the Father took all of our sins and placed them on Jesus Christ. On his account. He was not a sinner. He was perfect. But they were placed on his account. And he was on the cross when he died. He was judged for your sins and for mine. Separated from the Father. Suffered, as it were, eternal damnation, judgment on the cross for you and for me. And took our punishment. And then all of his righteousness, his law-keeping righteousness, was placed on our account. You say, but Andrew, that's so unfair. That's right. 
That's right. It's unfair. But that's God's sovereignty. It's a beautiful thing. He suffered for all of our sins. And we get all of his righteousness. If by faith, faith alone, casting ourselves in persevering faith, casting ourselves on him, not our own righteousness, but on him, we can be saved. My friends, that is the heart of the gospel that the Puritans understood and preached. And that's the gospel that needs to be preached today. Not a gospel that says, Jesus really likes you, and you're doing really well in your life, and wouldn't you like to be a success? You kind of failed. Jesus is here to be your cheerleader. Go, go, Jesus is saying, go, go, keep going. What a false gospel. The gospel teaches a dramatic, radical view of sin, so it can produce and show a radical, dramatic view of salvation, of God's grace. And the Puritans knew that. Then we could use, i move on quickly, a revival of Puritanism in the family. Edmund Morgan, in his book about the Puritans, the Pur- Puritan mind, I think quotes one Puritan as saying, and I love this quote, you parents will love this. God casts the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. Oh, isn't that so beautiful? People say, well, I'm not sure my child is one of the elect. Well, let's put it this way. If God had you get married as Christians, and he brought you together, and he gives you children, you can be pretty sure that he wants those children to be saved, and he's chosen them for him. And that's one reason we baptize infants. Not to save them, but to enroll them visibly among the people of God as God's elect ones. The ones who belong to him. The Puritans believe that the family itself is a little church. And the dad is the pastor of his little church. If the Puritans were preaching today, they would say to you dads, Dads, are you being a good pastor of your little church? Your church of three or four or five? Are you preaching the truth to your little church? Are you leading your little church? Are you shepherding their souls? Do you have them in the full church every Sunday? At home, do you love them and discipline your children? Lead your wife, sacrifice for her? That's what the Puritans would say. We need that Puritanism in the church and the family. And then I move on. We could use some Puritanism in the church. Historically, the Church of England had retained all sorts of rites and ceremonies, extra-biblical, from the Church of Rome. And the Puritans said, we need to purify the church, not carry its architecture and furniture along with us. We need to purify the church. If we're going to be reformers, let's be reformers. And let's go back to the Word of God and not hang on to these unbiblical things. Unfortunately, today, these dangerous trends have crept back into the church. A worship of externals in so many churches I'm seeing. A worship of very high liturgy. I was preaching a few years ago in a church in Oregon. And the pastor, who's kind of a little guy, a little diminutive dude, wanted to be bigger than he was, I guess. He says, yeah, liturgy is my weakness. And he got himself a special ring, a special ecclesiastical ring that he would wear only on Sundays. And he would get this very elaborate, you know, elaborate robes, big, long, elaborate robes, and waft his hand. And they were, they were meeting in a, in a hotel room. And all the 
was wafting his hand and all that. Later left the church, joined Eastern Orthodoxy with the smells and the bells. The Bible doesn't specifically prohibit ecclesiastical garb. Calvin wore very simple uh, ecclesiastical vestments. But all of this turning back to all of these rites and ceremonies rather than the full simplicity that is in the gospel is remarkable. You know where you really see it is in pulpit architecture. You watch it. I'm going to tell you something. Architecture has meaning. How things are placed have meaning. I've noticed in those churches, here's what happens. And may it never happen here, and I don't believe it will. The podium gets moved off to the side. And the communion table gets moved into the center. It gets more elaborate. And preaching goes on about 17 minutes. Nice little soft, pleasant message. And then we have, as it were, a sort of a Protestant mass. Here's what the Puritans understood. In the church of Jesus Christ, the word of God, the preaching of the word of God is always central. The sacraments are important, but they're secondary to the preaching of the word of God. Always. Every. In every case. Oh, we need a revival of strong biblical preaching in the church. And that, next, we could use a revival of Puritanism in theology. If you read the Puritans, you know that they loved and wrote great theology. I was in a church recently, and there was a dear lady there, a godly woman. She says, when you stand up and speak, could you talk about the need for theology? Somebody just told me, a pastor in the area that very week said, no, we don't really need theology. We need to quit stressing theology. Oh, theology is basically a unified grasp of the Bible. You can't read the Bible and say, oh, I'm going to look at that one verse there and that's all I need. You can't do that. You need to read all of the Bible and understand it in a coherent way. I wish you could have been there to hear Pastor Ron preach up in Corpus Christi at our Reformation conference a couple of days ago on the solus Christus, the Christ, only Christ. Christ is the center of all the word of God. Everywhere you turn in the Bible... You'll see Jesus Christ. Well, that was a message of theology. A coherent understanding of the Bible. You don't just pick one verse or another verse and say, well, I understand everything. No, you have to put it together coherently. And when you do that, you're talking about theology. Oh, theology today is so impoverished. People are so ignorant. The self-help churches... You hear about these sermons, tips on a successful marriage, how to succeed, how to make a lot of money. Very little preaching of the word of God and false doctrines in the churches, liberal churches that deny the Bible. I read recently a pastor writing, pastor in Oklahoma of all places, generally a conservative state. He's saying, well, I used to deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. He said, I still do deny the bodily resurrection, but I do believe in the resurrection. He says, and I'll tell you what. He says, here's how I know. He says, I'm gay, pastor. He says, and when I came out and told everybody that I'm gay, when I came out of the closet, that was my resurrection. So I believe in the resurrection. 
I'm just surprised God didn't strike him dead right on the spot. God and his grace didn't do it. Maybe there's a chance of giving a, a chance to repent. Good thing we're not God, right? We would strike him dead. What blasphemy. What blasphemy. But even conservative churches and their false Gnostic doctrine. You may have heard of the ancient heretic, one of the first heretics, Marcion. Who believed that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. We're governed by the New Testament and not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. And there the twain shall meet. The church condemned that, by the way, as a heresy. And it is an evil heresy. And yet, and yet there are churches today that teach almost that. And don't believe in the authority of the Old Testament. We need a great Puritan Reformation in theology. You can begin that in your own lives. Read the Bible. Start by reading the Bible. I mean, get up every morning and read the Bible. Say, Andrew, I'm too busy. I don't have time to read the Bible as you're posting to Facebook. Or watching the latest sitcom. Why don't you shut that off and read the Bible? If you have a long commute, there are wonderful programs. Listen to the Bible read. I'm out on the road a lot. You know what I did? Pop it right in and listen to the book of Daniel or listen uh, to the book of Mark or listen to something else, the book of Ezekiel. Listen to it and read the Bible. And study the Bible. And defend the Bible. And reflect on the Bible. Read good books about the Bible. I know it sounds so pious. People say, well, I don't want to read any other books except the Bible because I don't want to get any of the polluted man's teaching. Well, they mean well, but what they're really saying is that I, they think they can understand the Bible better than everybody else can. No, there are plenty of great books here, and they're not infallible, only the Bible is. But there's a lot of good stuff in there that can help you to understand the Bible better. Because you know what? Somebody out there might understand the Bible better than you do. Do you ever think about that? No. Yeah, really. Really. And me. Then I would conclude by saying we could use... A revival of Puritanism in our politics. I'm amazed at the people who have a a generally favorable view toward Puritanism. And they say, we need a revival of Puritanism and warm-hearted devotion to Jesus Christ and Puritanism in the church and standing for the truth. But the Puritans were really off base when it came to politics. Say, well, they were operating according to the truths and principles of the Word of God. I think they were right, and you're nuts for saying that. We call them the pietistic Puritans. Understand that this application of the law of God and the truth of God to all of life, including politics, is a part of the genius of Puritanism. We have deviated from that. Would you like to know the main reason that there is so much apostasy in politics today? Because our politicians on the whole, not every single one, but on the whole, have deviated from what the Puritans taught about politics. 
The heart of Puritan politics is the high view of the law of God. A high view of the law of God. The uh, medieval Roman view had really stressed canon law, church law, non-biblical law, extra-biblical law. And the Puritans said, no, we're bound by one thing and one thing alone, the written law of God. Reinforced in creation to be sure, but elaborated more in the scriptures, the written law of God. That's what we'll be governed by. The Mosaic law that binds all people. And that's why the Puritans, on the whole, believed in a very limited state. They believed in a very limited state. The state should govern according to the law of God and not invent all sorts of extra laws. All the bureaucracies today in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure also Austin. All of this intrusiveness into our lives. That's contra-Puritan. They wanted a state that should be chained by the word of God. What a massive, omnicompetent, almost deified state we have today. Doesn't mean you shouldn't obey it. Unless it asks you to do something specifically contrary to the word of God, you have to obey it. But we were, as it were, obey under protest, saying we will obey. The Bible says for conscience sake. But we need a much smaller state. The Puritans understood that. Pastors are called to instruct and rebuke politicians. I believe that the greatest Christian politician in the history of the world was Oliver Cromwell. We have some in our history, too, that were great, thank God. But my, I wish you would read about Cromwell sometime. Do you know who Cromwell was? The great Lord Protector. After Charles I had been executed, he was, the great, he was a great military commander. One of the greatest military commanders of all time. Never lost a battle. Never lost a battle. He fought the royalist forces. People wanted to make him king. He says, you're not going to make me king. There's only one true king we have, and that's Jesus Christ. I'll be the protector. I'll be the overseer, as it were, kind of like the elder. But I can't be the king. Read sometime <laughs> the speeches that he gave to parliament, the rump parliament, the various parliaments. Oh, read the speeches that he gave. Man, would he come in with a fiery declaration. He would say, you guys are a bunch of lazy bums. You're called to enforce the law of God. God will honor you if you obey his word. Quit dawdling, he would say, and obey the word of God. Oh, how I wish we had politicians like that today. I thank God that we have pastors today like yours that will stand and declare the law of God. Say, well, we have to be careful that we don't offend politicians. Well, Jesus didn't operate that way. And Paul didn't operate that way. They weren't rebels. They weren't insurrectionists, but they held people to the authority of the law of God. So much to rebuke today. To avoid politics, the Puritans would have understood, is to avoid the Bible. To avoid politics is to avoid the Bible. Because the Bible speaks on what we today call political themes. I would say that the emphases, the Reformation emphases of this wonderful congregation are just the emphases that our church needs, our individuals need, our family needs, our nation needs, our leaders need, political leaders need. I say we could use a revival of Puritanism today. We could use a revival of Puritanism in our individual lives, in our evangelism, 
in our families, in our church, in our theology, and in our politics. I hope that today, as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation on Tuesday, that we will determine to revive the faith of our fathers. It was that faith brought first to these shores by Puritans and others sympathetic to them. It was that faith that made this nation strong. This nation was founded by people who many of, many of whom, though not Puritan, were influenced by great Christian truth and the Puritan ethic and Puritan belief. Do you see all the blessings this country's had historically? Do you see that? It's a result of those great Christian and mostly Puritan beliefs. That's why we have the blessing. It's not just economics. Well, it's just a big country and people planted things and they grew and, and people ran a railroad and we were smart. It's not that. It was founded on Christian truth that gave us all of these glorious fruits. And as we turn away from God, we can expect that there will be great judgment. Great judgment. So I would urge you to be a part of the great Puritan Reformation today. Not just three, four hundred years ago, but one that is needed today. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would use this church and others like it to begin a great Puritan Reformation based on the truths of your word. Lord, may we love your word, may we love your son, may we love your church. Lord, may we have reformation without tarrying. May your word govern in all areas of thought and life. Lord, thank you for this congregation. May they be unified and loving with one another. And may many, many, many more people come. Believers come uniting and then unbelievers trusting in you and being converted. Father, we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And we look forward to the day when your knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh, how we look forward to that great day. And we know it's coming. Increase our faith. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Come on, Chuck. Let's all stand. Can you say amen to that message? Amen.